You certainly get a real sense of pain and suffering from what's happening in front of the camera. I think there's a real vulnerability. I think there's a there's a sense that there's not really anything you can do except that you can take photographs. And that's what it comes down to. And I could see the relevance and I could see the importance of making these kinds of photographs for history, for education, for moving people, to motivate people to whatever, you know, to really try and find a particular story or a particular photograph that may have some sort of change, create some sort of change and be positive. And so that feels good, but it, it never relieves the pain and, the, and, and what you feel as someone behind the camera who you just want to do more. That is Australian war photographer Stephen Dupont, and this is episode 287 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. Welcome to episode 287 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg, and this show today is with Stephen Dupont. He's a conflict photographer. He's a fascinating man. You can find him on Instagram right now, Stephen with a P-H, M Dupont, D-U-P-O-N-T, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-M-D-U-P-O-N-T, or at stephendupont.com. More about Stephen in a moment. If you're new to this show, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Thanks for being a part of it. Who am I? My name's Osher Ginsberg. I work on TV. I write books. I ride bikes. I'm a few short months away from welcoming a new baby boy into the world. And my new new hobby, uh, I've kind of changed on from last week's hobby, my new hobby is scrolling through real estate apps on my phone and then cursing whenever the factors that made it impossible to own a home within a one-hour drive of my kid's school for an amount of money that we don't have and an amount of money that won't keep me awake every night thinking about how the hell I'm going to pay the mortgage. Um, That's what I do. That's that's my new hobby. (laughs) Uh, I make this podcast... Uh, every Monday and Friday, and I have done since 2013, and I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're a part of it. What is this podcast? Well, it, look, it's pretty simple. It's just a conversation. It's a conversation that you get to be a part of and a conversation designed to hopefully help you make today a little bit better than yesterday, something that you'll hear in the next hour, next hour and a bit. Stephen, we go long on this one. It's guaranteed to make you go, oh, right, yeah, and maybe try something new, look at something new. A big thank you to everybody who left a rating and a review in the iTunes store. It really helps more people find out about the show. I know more, more, I know a lot of people listen through Spotify and through Android Podcast or whatever the podcast app it is you listen to. But for some reason, Apple Podcasts, that's the metric that a lot of people go off when it comes to booking guests. So if you want to write something about the show, it makes a massive difference to us by subscribing, rating, and reviewing in the Apple iTunes store. It really helps us a lot, helps us on the charts, and it's being helping already. So thank you to encourage you to do more. I'm going to read some on the show. So thank you very much for Cluidlum. Um, an amazing man, an amazing podcast. Osha's great story. And it's very insightful. He speaks about mental health and all kinds of topics. He's a beautiful human and so glad that he released his book, but also his podcast. Thank you, Cluidlum. Um, Nerve Bag, five stars, best podcast. I've listened to every podcast, some second and third time. Wow. Osha's friendly, easygoing, which I'm sure helps his guest feel comfortable. I enjoy every podcast, so many amazing stories. I learn a lot about his guests that I didn't know. 
Osha's intros and check-ins helped me get through a lot of struggles with my anxiety and depression. I thank him for that. Well, thank you very much, Nerf Bag. Um, my favorite time of the week from Ireland 01. I've been listening to Osha's podcast for well over a year and it's still one of my favorites. Love it. So honest. Love his interviews. Love his stories. Um, thanks very much. Oh, and my weekly joy from Claire. Discovered by chance, this podcast is something I look forward to every week. Osher and his guests are my companions as I go through my week. There's always something to learn, a new perspective or food for my soul. Osher's a gifted interviewer. His empathy, personal humanity and authenticity are a part of the secret source in his podcast. Why, thank you so, so much, Claire. See, in case you're wondering, I do have a secret source. It involves soy milk, arrowroot flour and um, nutritional yeast flakes and chili. That's my secret source. That's really good. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. So let me tell you about my guest today. Stephen DuPont is a conflict photojournalist from Australia. For the last 30 years, he's traveled the world photographing people, places, and cultures at their most beautiful, their most vulnerable, and often their most violent. Stephen is a rare breed of person, the kind that willingly forges forward into a conflict zone, hoping to get the right shot that will tell the story of those inside the conflict so that those on the outside world may bear witness to it maybe even do something to change it. As you'd imagine, Stephen has seen and documented moments of humans being their most horrendous to each other. From witnessing American soldiers burning the bodies of Taliban fighters in Afghanistan, a photograph that changed the rules of engagement around the world, to being blown up in a suicide bombing that killed 15 people around him. Stephen has seen, witnessed and documented and lived and breathed and smelled the horrors of humanity, and he's lived to talk about it, to share what he's seen. Stephen is a fascinating human being. 
And if you're into photography or if you're not into photography, I would highly recommend catching him at Aperture Australia, which is the largest photography conference in the Southern Hemisphere. And it's at the Sydney International Convention Centre in Darling Harbour on the 22nd and 23rd of June. You can get more details at apertureaustralia.com. I highly recommend you look up what Stephen's got going on. Um, if you want to dig a little deep into his story and you know his journey, it's there's a lot to cover. We didn't get anywhere near all of it done, um, but I would recommend you know digging a little deeper because he's got a lot to teach us. Yeah, the most e- easily easy way in, I think, would be on Instagram, Stephen M Dupont, S T E P H E N M D U P O N T on Instagram, and also stephendupont.com. So do let him know that you heard him here on the show. But for now, come to my apartment for a fresh cup of coffee and a truly fantastic Australian, Stephen Dupont. Thanks for being here, man. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. I'm stoked you made it up. Yeah, it's nice to be back in kind of my old hood in a way. Oh, really? Well, well we- I was in Bondi, so just down the road for oh, yeah? I don't know, 10 or 15 years. Yeah. What era were you in Bondi? Oh, what era? The, the 90s. Oh, really? So just before me. Oh, actually, um, 99. No, the 2000. Yeah, from 99 till about, I don't know, 2007 or something. Oh, yeah. Like that. that was about the same time as same time as me. I was uh, doing um, Channel V and Australian Idol and various mm-hmm. other music television-y things and yeah. being a, a guy in his 30s with a black and white film camera trying to learn how to surf just uh, yeah black and white film camera yes, yeah yes. right you've got my attention uh, oh don't worry there's a there's a vintage polaroid later okay that happens after we record i take your portrait on oh, that cool oh, i love polaroid <laughs> uh yeah so i remember i remember one time reading aquabumps and um huge oh, yeah. huge was like bloody surf packed with you know dudes on longboards who shoot you know black and white film or have only shot black and white film for the last 18 months I'm like Oh, that's me, Huge. Yeah, that's me too. <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing wrong with the longboard. No. It's the right swell. No, there's nothing, mate. It's actually mate. great. Was it Dave Rastovich once said to me, um, there's no such thing as bad surf, only poor choice of surfing equipment. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, yeah. So um, so when you – did you grow up in uh, that part of the world? No. I'm, I grew up in the Southern Highlands, I suppose, originally. So for folks not from this part, or oh, hang on, there's fresh, so, oh my fresh God, out of the that. oven They're cookies. Very hot, yeah. So. What kind oh, of well, cookies I'm... are these, huh? They're just straight butter. Like shortbread? Uh, not quite, but nearly. Okay. <laughs> not quite, but nearly. So just they look really butter good. and flour. Yeah. And sugar. Don't forget that. They smell good. They really do. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you can't have one. <laughs> so right, I'll, I'll have one for you. You should, mate. And There's I'll let three you know. and they're all yours. I'll let you know what it's like. And, Please yeah. do. So for people who yeah. aren't from Australia, we have a bunch of people from not from Australia that listen, yeah. um, the the Southern Highlands, that is, I guess, famously Bowral, but outside yeah. of that. Well, I grew up in Mittagong, which is right next door to Bowral. Yeah. But I sort of grew up in that region, you know, between sort of Mittagong, Bowral, Robertson, uh-huh. Mossvale, um, yeah. Leafy, green, very, cold. Yeah, I guess very English, you know. I think it was sort of back in the day, it was the sort of place that, um, you know, the early settlers, you know, found some sort of a, a connection to their homeland, I suppose, because mm. it's always cold and misty and rainy, rains a lot there. It was a great place to grow up. Yeah. Um, I mean, I suppose I had a pretty unusual 
upbringing. I'm not sure how much you know about my my how, early childhood. How but my, is that unusual? Well, my parents were social workers, and Mittagong was quite well known for having the most uh, state ward homes and delinquent homes within New South Wales. There's still got a lot there, but when we were there, it was it was um, there were a lot. And my parents um, were full time carers, so they lived in the homes with all the the kids, including myself and my brother. So we we grew up with this huge kind of extended family in a way, with thirty or forty kids around us the whole time. It was kind of uh, almost like a full time boarding school <laughs> kind of thing. Um, but these were all disenfranchised, uh, orphaned, um, delinquent kind of kids, you know, and uh, my parents were, were kind of like their mum and dad. So I grew up around that environment for my early sort of childhood up until about 10. And then my parents moved to Campbelltown, which is uh, out in the western suburbs of Sydney. Again, stayed working as social workers, but went to different places. My mum worked in a girls' reform sort of home and my dad worked in a boys' reform home, so they were dealing with young delinquent criminal kids. And then, you know, we moved into a regular house. So we were sort of spent, you know, 10 years at inside the homes with the kids and then, you know, my parents sort of, you know, kept doing the same kind of job, but um, we kind of moved into the suburbia life and mm. um, I sort of spent my primary and, and high school years sort of growing up in the western suburbs which was uh it was another kind of eye-opener I suppose yeah. uh, you know something that I sort of I think at the time really rebelled against and hated but as I've grown older I've, I've come to really appreciate the lessons of life that I learned not only yeah I guess in in Mittagong but also just growing up in some pretty rough neighbourhoods. Yeah. And uh, experiencing that sort of, just that marginalised life, you know, those those sort of marginalised people. It was Mm. really, really interesting. I'm I'm guessing pretty early on you figured out that, you know, other kids at school don't have 30 brothers and sisters. Mm. Yeah, but I, I was pretty young, so I'm not sure at that time you know, I really kind of understood it. It was just what it was. Did you guys go to the same school? No, I went to a normal public school. But the the kids in the homes went to a school within the homes. So I didn't go to the same school. So I would then sort of trek off to the local Mittagong public school, Uh come home and then, you know, play footy and muck around with all these other kids. Unreal. It would be just... Just every single day, there'd be games on. It would be we'd have full teams to to play. Yeah, I mean, would. it was it was quite interesting, and it was uh, you know we'd have football ovals at the back of the home, so yeah. it was a big space. Yeah, and then right. there was a lot of bush and yeah. a lot of properties and sort of farms and things like that around. So I pretty much grew up just sort of running around out in the kind of bush and stuff like that, yeah. doing crazy things that kids do at that age, you know. And I'm guessing that these are kids who. In one way or another, they've all experienced a, a form of trauma. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And do you remember at all your parents talking to you about that or find it just, do you was, notice, can you recognise now ways they might have protected you from that? Oh, look, to be brutally honest, I mean, I think they, they, they did the best job they could in terms of trying to give me and my brother a, 
a, you know, a normal kind of upbringing or, you know, a, a parent-child upbringing. But at the same time, I think that was a struggle for them because they were literally 24-7 mm. trying to look after these other kids. So we were kind of just sort of, in a way, kind of lumped in with the rest of them yeah. with slight privileges of course you know we didn't sleep in dormitories we had our own kind of apartment attached to it so in a sense I was a kind of an outsider Mm. you know to these other kids but I would mix with them as well but I was the sort of you know the uh (laughs) the carer's kid you know know, I mean there's nothing you can do about that so you know there was always that sort of uh I guess they saw it as a bit more of a privilege than than their own lives. And, yes, they they would have come from all sorts of traumatic backgrounds and all different kinds of stories. Um, I was too young to really understand what those stories were and also what it really meant for them emotionally, I suppose. I was just just having fun and just being a kid, you know. But I think as I've gotten older and I've experienced life, a lot more. Um, I think back to those days and I think how extraordinary it was to be a part of that life. Uh, I don't think many, many people would have experienced that kind of life. So it was, it was a great learning experience. You certainly get confronted with a lot of things early on in life that you may not necessarily be confronted with um, in, in a, a normal situation. So um, maybe it, it had some sort of ref, sort of you know reflection on or impact on and what I would do in later life you know in terms of what I do now and and what I have done in through my um, my photography you know I think that having that experience of the uh, you know disenfranchised sort of people and and uh, marginalized people I think had an impact on and how I see the world or how I how mm. I wanted to see the world and experience the world out there I mean yeah. my first inclination after leaving school was just to get out of Australia and 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 get out of school and yeah. and, and just go travel and see the world that was just all all that was on my mind yeah. I didn't didn't really know I I took photographs but I didn't really kind of have a feeling that I'd become a photographer at that stage, but I definitely knew that I had to run away. Yeah, I had to get out and and see what was going on outside of Campbelltown. You know, yeah. So it was sort of like, just get me out of here. Yeah, I've got a mate from Campbelltown who did the same thing. Uh, so, but not the, everyone does. No, sadly, not, you know. No, that's okay though. Yeah. It does. It takes yeah. a certain. It is okay. Yeah. It takes a certain. Well, a. Back then, in the time before the internet or Instagram, like uh, or any kind of, when I think about my own experience, I didn't know that you could. Mm. It just it didn't. It, in my suburban growing up of Brisbane, I didn't. I heard that some people went overseas. I didn't know how. I didn't know where. I didn't know who. I didn't mm. know where to start. I didn't know how much money you needed. I didn't know yeah. any of that. Someone said, "Oh, you can get around the world ticket for three thousand bucks." Mm. I'm earning, you know, forty bucks a day mm. to, as a roadie. I'm like three thousand dollars. I'll never get three thousand dollars. You know, might as well forget about it. I didn't go anywhere until I was twenty-four. Yeah, I was pretty lucky because, oh wow, I mean, I wouldn't say I mean lucky in one regards, but unlucky in another. My father died when I was thirteen. Oh shit! And he left me some money, which was you know, at that time it was like ten thousand dollars, which was a lot of money, and and it sort of allowed me to do whatever I wanted to do with it when I left school. So I got the money when I turned eighteen. 
and I used it to travel. That's what. That's how I was able to spend a year on the road without yeah. really working. Sorry to and hear that. I had a mate, yeah. that, I had a mate that oh. lost his dad when he was he was fourteen. He was really close. We were really close, and I, I saw it. He just turned in one direction, and he mm. never came back. It was really right. tough to see. Yeah, that yeah. must have been hard, man. It was hard. You know, I mean, he died of cancer, and um, yeah, I was pretty young, but it was. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's hard, to, you know, you try and think back about... I think you try and block it out of your system. Mm. When you're at that early teenage time, you, you, your hormones are going and, you, you you know, I was playing for sport and was incredibly active and uh, I was just, just starting to play Aussie rules at the time and really getting into it and finding this new passion um, for the sport. And, and I remember my dad coming to see a you know, see some games and stuff before he got sick. And so there was this real kind of sense of trying to prove to him that I was something yeah. that I could play, you know, and he was he was really into sport as well. He'd watch any sport, you know, golf, cricket. I grew up watching cricket with him. We'd, you know, go off to the SCG and watch the West Indies play at Australia and on the hill when the hill was there. And, and my dad was, a you know, it's just just loved any sport but um you know so you know and then he got sick and then you know it was one of those sort of you know horrible long kind of dying kind of scenarios and uh but i think you block it out you know and you you just get on and that's what i did Mm. um and uh yeah i mean you know i never stopped thinking about him but you learn that that's life. We all die. Mm. You know, everyone dies at some point. And uh, I think the, uh, you know, the challenge is to how how you um, take the next step and, and, and that determines your life as well. So as a 13-year-old, I, was, I just threw myself into sport, you know, whatever. I was just determined to kind of... In a sense, it gave me more of a drive because it's like everything I did, I did for him. You know, he wasn't there, but everything, all my achievements for quite a long time in my early years were all for him. So it was like his his soul was kind of travelling with me around the world and, um, and all these kind of nasty, unusual and exciting places he was always there uh, and, and and I was doing it for him you know now I do it for my daughter but you know my dad was there for a while sorry dad you got knocked off the pedestal I, I, you hey, know I, I never met I'm, the man but I'm sure he wouldn't mind uh, here can um, I have a bite of mate one? get into that cookie you've been nursing that beautiful cookie mmm yeah, you probably hear it crunching on. No, the no, way. that's okay. Early but, podcasts, well, really good. Yeah, my wife is an extraordinarily talented woman. <laughs> she just happens to Beautiful. also be able to bake. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> she. Uh, Audrey uh, had Georgia when she was twenty-three, and she um, she was doing a double degree in biotech and business, mm-hmm. and she dropped out because she got pregnant. And this is time. not your first though, right? Because uh, you said this you is my first. Oh, it's your baby. first. Okay. Uh, but I've been George's stepdad for coming up on six years. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Coming up for five years. So I've been I've been doing the job. Come but on, congratulations. Yeah. It's amazing. Are you scared? Uh no, I'm not scared. Mm-hmm. Um I'm a bit overwhelmed, but I don't think in any other way that any other 
I got really sick a little while ago. Um, I went through like psychosis that manifested as paranoid delusions, and I was on antipsychotics for a while, and it was it was really scary. And mm-hmm. um, my mum, who she kind of clocked it. Um, she's passed away now, but she clocked it when I met Audrey. I was on two kinds of antipsychotics and an SSRI, and I was on like four different kinds of meds when I met her. I was like all fat from the drugs. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, I remember talking to mom and oh, I've met this woman and, da, 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 da. and then she's like listen don't she goes I know you oh, basically my thing was like the you know the world is ending and I you know yeah. the, the, no one knows about climate change but me and mm. you know I was wanting to run up to people in the street and warn them and mom kind of clocked that I was like oh, I don't want to why would I want to bring a kid into you know something like this and my mom spent about three years on the road four years on the road as a refugee after World War Two. Right, traveling down from Lithuania through what was then, you know, Prussia and then through Austria and down to finally Germany or whatever. And then, uh, you know, she told these, you know, horrible stories about, you know, what was happening to them and this column of people just walking from Was she a Holocaust survivor? Uh, Dad's family is the Jewish side. So you have Jewish background? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there was, of my three uncles, two of them... Uh, were taken killed by the Nazis, and one of them was building the gas chambers in the camp when they got liberated. Jesus, yeah, yeah. And I've I've been to Prague and I've seen their names mm. on the wall of the synagogue, and yeah, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. But Mum basically clocked that I was reluctant to have a baby, right? And she said, "You remember I told you all about the stuff about you know being on the road, and you know." She goes, "She said family life didn't stop, mm. you know." People still made dinner yeah. and they still had arguments and squabbles among the kids and mm. then they packed up their camp and they got back on the road and they kept walking and then people yeah. still had children and they just knew that this would all be over soon and they just kept moving. And and hearing... My uncle was born as bombs fell around them and, you know, I remember hearing that going, I guess, you know, you know she'd know and you'd know and she's right. It's just... Everyone, I'm sure, when they become a parent, go, but the world isn't safe. Ah, what am yeah. I doing? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so to answer your question in a long way, yeah, yeah, I'm scared, but I don't think any more mm. than any other no. human would be. But I'm also, I'm kind of grateful in that I'm one of the last people that I know to, you know, have a baby. Mm. So there's heaps of men mm. and women around me that have all been there. Yeah. So, yeah, it's scary, but... Yeah. Exciting. I know that every question that I have and every problem that I have, there is someone that's got an answer. There's, yeah. you know, it's we're not living in isolation in a cabin in the woods. You know, no. I've got a phone in my hand that has a sum total of all human knowledge in it, and I have about, <laughs> you know, including my brothers, I've got about twenty people that I can call if yeah. I need to. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm sure there's still going to be stressful moments. Of course. I mean, you know be boring if there was yeah. <laughs> when you did reach escape velocity from Campbelltown did you go and looking for what's familiar did you go and look for that kind of turbulence that you remembered from you know the 30 or 40 <sighs> kids or did you go ah Earl's Court yeah, I went to Earl's Court yeah <laughs> I certainly did I spent a bit of time there um, when I was in London but no I, I, I really went off road I think you know I I got one of these around-the-world tickets and um, I started in Japan. Right on. Yeah. And that was like, yeah. I mean, a serious culture shock for me. I mean, that was just like, well, I mean, incredible, like clean, wonderful people, um, you know, went skiing, you know, um, you know, did all the 
things that an 18 year old would do and enjoyed myself tremendously you know it was just great and, and uh why did I go there I I I had a um there was an exchange student that was the connection who was at our school and I befriended him and I went and hooked up with him and he kind of introduced me to the, 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 the life in Tokyo and, and also outside of his family, which was in a small kind of village. So I got to sort of experience, you know, Japan quite a bit. And then from Japan flew to Brazil. Where there's half, like the largest population of Japanese outside of Japan in South Carolina. Is that right? Yeah. yeah like well, Heaps of Japanese down there. I, yeah, that, I, yeah that's, that's true. I, I remember now. But at the time, well, I didn't go to Sao Paulo. I this went is late, to, late 80s, early 90s? This is 85. Yeah. Man, Brazil would have been loose back then. It was then. really loose. It was, and I was on my own. I was, I landed in Rio de Janeiro and I... Um, made friends this is how life has changed you know like I made friends with someone on the plane a Brazilian guy who was going back as well he was on the plane from Japan we got to talking he invites me to come and stay at his house and it's sort of like you know and he would he lived on Ipanema Beach it was incredible so he was actually one of these really wealthy kind of uh, families and um, I hooked up with him for a while staying at his place and I mean I actually also did stay at a really dodgy um, kind of look it seemed like some sort of a student or artist housing project in in Rio but it was it was really dark it was it was extraordinary actually still think of it to this day and just think my god how I got through that you know just the dark like heroin well, dark or yeah that oh. and also just unhygienic you know prostitutes everywhere living there and students and 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 vagabonds and really strange kind of street people I mean it was literally I'd sort of walked into a the biggest kind of DOS house in Rio. I mean, it was just extraordinary. But it was in this incredible old building. So it was a, it was like a squat, actually. Uh-huh. I think it was a squat. It was a derelict, like, university building. And then I think from there I actually went to this guy's house. So I think I, sta- I, think I started there and then I called him and he invited me to come and stay. Right. And it was just such an incredible, you know, from the, the gutter yeah. of Rio to, like, the ultimate in, you know, he, he was in this skyrise uh, penthouse apartment overlooking Ipanema Beach. It was just, yeah. And so I got to experience both worlds. Um, and that, that, was, that was amazing in, in, in both ways, you know, both, both areas, you know. And, uh, and then from there I headed to, um, to Europe. Yeah. So Earl's Court and, and then and then Europe and Denmark, which is where my family are from. Right. So I went back to Denmark and, and saw my relatives and had a time there around Copenhagen and, and Aarhus and a few Another other one places. of the great bicycle cities of the world. It is. Oh, man. Sure is. Look at, you know, and great people and, yeah. I, I, you know, obviously grown up with with that Danish heritage my whole life. So that was that was good. And then yeah, did the Eurail thing around Europe and met a girl um while I was there. Left the girl, went to India, went to Nepal, went to Thailand, went home. Damn, you did it. Hooked up with that same girl later on and um in fact uh she became my wife for a while. So back in Australia. 
But anyway, it was, um, yeah. Before the internet, to meet someone twice on the same trip like that, that is impressive because there's letters involved. <laughs> mm. Well, you know, we, we'd need hours to sort of talk about the journey. But, I mean, yeah, look, in no, those but days, it just it sounds was... like well, basically what I'm trying to get to, man, is like you were, you're, you reached escape velocity from Campbelltown. Yeah. Uh, you'd only at that point seen really Mittagong and Campbelltown. That's right. You'd gone through this awful tragedy as a kid. And then you went and just squeegeed your eyeballs open in the face of the world for a year. Yeah. What was Campbelltown like when you got back? Yeah, well, it was it was pretty shallow for a start. I mean, it was yeah. it was it was awful, but it always was. You know, I mean, I, I look, I was I was never I was never comfortable there, and I just could not wait to get out. I mean, I went moved back in with my mum when I got home, as you do. No money, no job, yeah. no life, no career, no nothing, no, you know. But what this trip had taught me, you know, what it gave me, especially India. India was the place that just opened up the whole world of photography to me uh, and also the world of, of extreme poverty and extreme beauty. I mean, India was just... It was just an extreme place. In, so you had a camera so with many levels. Oh yeah, I, I was travelling around with the camera the whole time. I was keeping a diary and and I was yeah. photographing. But it was just for me. It was, Pentax K one thousand. It was actually. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there you yeah. go. It was, and it was a great camera. <laughs> it's a great one. And India just was like a roller coaster. Yeah. Of everything, just population and disease and filth and hunger and and you know incense <laughs> great food and i mean just it just had everything you know and uh it was it was it was incredible history you know just the history so i was really blown away by india i was really i got you know incredibly sick but at the same time i was i was just there was something something got in you know india got under my, under my skin and 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 i i met some photographers there and and i i think I was starting to think about you know because I was going home I was actually on my way home what am I going to do you know am I going to make a living I wasn't interested in going to university or I think before I'd left on that trip I had ideas of being like a a sound engineer because I was into music and uh, and filmmaking so I had these kind of you know ideas but photography really hit me in in India and I was like oh, maybe I could yeah maybe I could do this maybe I could actually do this as a career and so um when I you know landed back in Campbelltown after a year on the road I um started to put the feelers out and started to 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 make it happen I I was very determined I mean I was nothing was going to stop me from being a photographer and that, I'd made that decision and that was that was it so I was determined to put myself into that world. And so I met photographers. I met one photographer who... So I had one connection. My older brother went to school with a guy called Stuart Davidson. 
and he was the big shot of the good weekend at the time when I when I got home. The lift out magazine yeah. that happens on the, yeah. the Sunday paper. Yeah, yeah. The Sydney One Morning of the, Herald. I think it's like the, the most highest circulation of any magazine in the country or something like that because it, it goes out with yeah. newspapers, right? Yeah. So yeah. it's not like something that sells on newsstand, but it's still a magazine. Yeah. It's 60, 80 pages long. It's, it's a weekly magazine and, um, and you know, at that time, and still is, it, you know, he was, he was really the... Uh, premier photographer you know he was a great photographer and he grew up in Campbelltown so he went to school with my brother so I I got a connection straight to him through my brother he said call Stuart maybe he can kind of give you some pointers you know show you around so I I did and and he he actually set me um on a bit of a a goal and a strategy and and um uh in fact you know my first real I guess, experience in, in photography seriously was through music, so through bands. I mean, I was a music lover and a band lover, and in fact, Stuart had also started, when he started his career, he started photographing rock and roll bands. And so I did the same. It was almost like I was sort of mirroring his mm. his career path. And so, and that was great because it gave me free access to see all of these bands that I loved. And it was just, you know, right up front in the pit, photographing it was i was in my element you yeah know? and so i did that for years yeah um also worked in fashion started doing models portfolios and uh, assisting fashion photographers and assisting you know big commercial photographers to get the experience and to be paid as an assistant it's, it's quite the old school apprenticeship doesn't i yeah. don't know how much it exists it was like now an old school apprenticeship yeah. in a way and and i had to it was weird i remember I remember the whole way along I was just, you know, lying my way through, um, getting access to things, even getting work with photographers. You know, can you do lighting? Oh, yeah, I can do lighting. Of course I can do lighting. I've never done lighting. I just I just winged it. I just winged it and, and learnt along the way exactly how I learnt to take photographs was just trial and error. And somehow I got through it and I met some great photographers along the way and they gave me a lot of support and a lot of experience. And um, and then I, you know, in my early 20s, I was starting to get really itchy, you know, and I really wanted to break into the photography world of, of what I was in love with. And that was documentary photography. That was the, you know, going back to my travelling and, and seeing the world and, and having an excuse to go out there and see it by taking these photographs. Um, so I started to, you know, look at photographers that were inspiring to me and, you know, slowly working my way through, going out and shooting, you know, photo essays and, and really kind of hard-edged sort of stories and then trying to get published in the local magazines and things like that. So it was a, you know... It was a slow process, but it had to be done that way. Then, and I was not working on staff for anyone. I wasn't being paid a wage, and I, and I never have my whole life. So I spent this whole time. Um, I mean, admittedly, I was working in restaurants and bars and to make money. But I was, you know, photography was was my passion, and, and I was doing everything I can to put myself in a situation where I could then start to make money. So it happened eventually. I've seen, I can't tell you how many times I've seen that pattern in my career, and I think I did it myself. There's, there's something to be said for going to some sort of training college and, and having a, a set of skills that you know, are reliable. But there's also, 
I, I would rather someone on set who's just like, I'll do anything, just tell me what to do. I've got enough of an idea about what it should look like mm. that if you just tell me one or two things, then I will stand there for 10 hours and do it. And I'd much rather have someone like that on set. Yeah. Because they just so want to be there versus yeah. I spent three years at a college. I know yeah. all about this stuff. When do yeah. I get to be behind the camera? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I get it. And, and that's how, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Go for the, uh, go for the worker. Yeah. You know, the I'd, I'd much rather have someone that I just, you know, you spend 10, 15 minutes showing someone and then, but they're just so hungry for it. Yeah. You know, but that's the thing. I mean, I did, I did that myself, you know, I think yeah. there's a, Fake it till you make it, all that kind of stuff. It's bloody real, man. Well, it's a catch-22, yeah. you know, and, and you, you, how do you get experience without getting experience, yeah. you know? And so you kind of have to, but, you you know, you also have to be pretty um, clever and pretty savvy because a lot of people, you know, may not be able to do it, you know? I mean, there, there's, a, there's a sense of sort of, I think you've got to have that drive and passion first and foremost. And I think if you've got that, that's you sort of one step ahead of everyone else, you know? Yeah, I'm sure. Like- so it's, you know... Yeah, and you've got to be a bit of a con artist at some point. <laughs> at two in the morning. Sort of like work your way through it. But, hey, yeah. at the end of the day, I think you can prove your talent and you yeah. can prove your worth. And, and I think that's sort of – that's everything, like you said. You know, like you'd rather have someone who's going to do 10 hours than someone who's been at college who wants your job. You know, forget and, it. And I'm sure that you've also got to have that thing, though, when you're hosing out a bar at 2 a.m., knowing that you've got to be on call yeah. at the rental place at 6 to pick up the lights for the shoot that starts at 7.30, mm. you're going to have to really want it. Absolutely. And there was, you know, I was, you know, working bars and restaurants to the, and then going out afterwards oh, yeah. all night, you know, <laughs> and then going to work the next day. I mean, it, but when you're young, you can do that. Yeah. You, you know, there are ways to do it, <laughs> as we know. And, and, and it was fun, you know, but, you know, you just, you just go with the flow and you, it's, it's, it is, it's rock and roll and, and it's, it's, a, it's an incredible life, you know. When did you know? that when you started to do these editorial things and you're, you're pitching these photo essays and stuff like that, was there a point where you did like two or three jobs in a row where editors would be like, sure, we'll pay you to go do that or sure, we'll buy this story off you? Where you went, oh, this might, I think I'm here. Wow. Well, it, yeah, I'm just trying to think back. I mean, look, the, I know my first published photograph. It was a photograph of James Brown, and that was the first photograph I ever had published, and that was published in a um, a street mag called Stiletto. I don't know if you remember Stiletto back in the uh, back in the eighties. I grew up in the nineties. So okay, so Stiletto was the cool street mag, um, and and I had a connection through you know, with Stiletto. I was you know kind of connected through the fashion, and my partner at the time was a model, and and and. Uh, and I knew the editor, and so I was breaking in through Stiletto, and so they published my first photo, and uh, and then a couple of other magazines started to publish some of my other pictures. So everything I was doing was on spec, was was purely on a freelance basis. I wasn't being paid, and I was just trying to to make the photographs that I wanted to make, and then try and have them published, and then try and get paid for it. So all um, relationships up front, bragging, lagging oh, the promoter to get the pass, it, oh, then yeah. blagging oh, yeah. the, the magazine to try and get it. So totally. all relationships. Well, that's yeah. right. You know, I mean, so I'd built up a, a good relationship with a promoter, and I'd have to basically say, yeah, look, I'm working for this magazine, but I'm not really. You know, you're lying, and you get your pass, and everything is, you know, you're winging the whole way along. 
Mm. But you get to a point where you're no longer winging it. You're actually there legitimately. Yeah. But you've you've got to spend those. But you know those that that time to to get through that. And and I got through it and and started to, you know, be a fairly you know regular. Um, kind of rock and roll photographer at one point. That was that was really the mm. you know, really early in my career. Um, well, it's great training for the stuff that you do later in your life, you know, because it's kind of it, is. three songs, no flash. You can't get in their faces. You can't affect the situation. You can't ask them to do anything mm. that they wouldn't otherwise be doing. If you miss the moment, you can't get them to do it again. You got to get in. You got to get out. Yeah, uh, it's a high pressure situation. It is. It is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got to not piss much, off anybody on the way in and out. That's right. <laughs> you know. Um, you know. Most of all, the band, and second, the promoters. You know, and uh, the band managers. You know. Yeah. The Michael Chugs and Gadinskis, ah, and you know, to get, get through those. Oh yeah, they were they were ah, the guys. You know, uh, these were the guys that I was dealing with on a regular basis. And you know, I used to go to after parties with them, and you know, so I was also connected socially. Because once you get into that groove, you you, yeah. you go with the band and oh, you go yeah. to the after parties. I mean, it's a, it's a pretty amazing life for a while, you know. Um, and they start to respect you, and uh, and and you become a kind of a part of that that world you know become a part of their team in a way and then i'd start getting called up to do music videos and 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 you know things like that so i was really quite heavily connected there was there was only a few of us yeah. bob king tony mott and myself at one point it was really it's very um very male dominated yeah um, and I remember, uh, I remember bob he's passed away now yeah sadly yeah, yeah. I, rem- I remember Bob. But Bob, 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 Tony, and I would be guaranteed at every single major concert, and yeah. you know, we we had this kind of club. You know, it, yeah. was, it was great. But what I, you know, what I loved about it was beyond the photography. I actually just, I loved to go and see the music. I'd love to see the bands. I'd love to go backstage. I, you know, so it was a kind of a lifestyle thing as well. Yeah. And then of course, you know. Um, you want to get really great photos as yeah. well. Um, and that, you know, I guess that led to my real drive and passion, which was to be, you know, a documentary photographer. And in order to do that, you needed to commit yourself to a long-term project. So people like Eugene Smith and, and, um, and you know, many other photographers, Joseph Kudelka and William Klein, Robert Frank, Gary Winogrand, all these people were out there, you know, making these great documentary photos and street photography and, and, and also working on long-term projects. So my, you know, my drive was to do that and to work in that world. Um, and so I remember picking up a copy of a book called The Gun and Knife Club. It was um, by Eugene Richards, uh, this magnum photographer at the time. And uh, he it was one of his early books and it was about a emergency room in New York City. And I just remember it, it was just a groundbreaking book. And it was very, you know, very, very um, raw and uh, real and, and what you'd imagine from that kind of world, you know, the police, the streets, the the emergency room. I decided I would do something similar and that was my first ever long-term project and it was um, about an emergency room at Liverpool Hospital um, out in the West. So I got all the permissions and um, basically went and kind of lived at the hospital for a couple of months 
you know, through ER and, and, and sort of, you know, um, the different wards and, and, and so forth and, and made this body of work which got published in a like a photo magazine or something. So it was great for me. It was like it got published as a photo essay. It was it was a kind of a camera club magazine. But then it started to get attention. And I remember um, the Good Weekend saw the photos and they ended up putting it on the cover. Um, they were doing an asthma story. And I had this, and it's still a photograph I'm incredibly proud of. So one of my first sort of photos, and it was a, a it was a shot of a, a kid literally dying of an asthma attack inside the emergency um, ward in front of the camera. It was a horrible, horrible thing to see. I mean, he didn't die, but he was... It just made me realise just how, you know, just how serious, you know, asthma was as well and, and, and how it affected certain people. But the photograph was very powerful. And they ran it as a cover and they ran a, a spread and to highlight the just... The, the the deadliness and 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 just the importance of of understanding what mm. asthma was about at that time so that was that was a great great thing and you know and then I worked in the world of news photography for a long time I, I had a photography agent you know I had a photo agency in Sydney which was selling my works like um and I was sort of doing social stuff and I was I was doing sport I worked on the Australian newspaper for a, a year as a as a casual and I think it I just grew out of that life here in Australia and I I, I desperately needed to go overseas again um, so I think at about the age of 25 I hit the road and I, I moved to London and I spent seven or eight years in London. So that was where I really, I guess, cut my teeth. That was where I really got thrown into the deep end in terms of competition, in terms of being creative, in terms of trying to make it in that world where you're competing with the best in the world. You're, you're there. I'm working for the Sunday Times, the Observer, the Guardian, you know, the Independent, and I'm also working for publications around the world through an agent in London. So, you know, that was an incredible um, time. And that, that's where I, I think I, I found myself. I, I certainly found my, my world and, and, and how photography could be um, for me and, and what I needed to do mm. and what I needed to see and what I needed to photograph. And that was where I started to, I guess, to really look at the world and look at war and you know atrocities and and history and things that were going on life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs that's why united healthcare provides health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs learn more at uh1.com there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Essentially what you saw in that emergency room in Liverpool of you know a few human beings at an incredible crisis point one 
very young, very vulnerable person facing imminent death, people around him not knowing what to do, his family perhaps, and then these emergency health professionals who are working very hard to try and save him. So these, these three kind of groups of people all in this one point. You know, when, when you first experience those moments, is there a purity about that? Is there something about the human experience that you see galvanising in front of you? I, I think you you get a real sense of... You certainly get a real sense of pain and suffering from what's happening in front of the camera. I think there's a real vulnerability. I think there's a... There's, there's a sense that there's not really anything you can do. And, uh, and that can be taken in many different ways. And except that you can take photographs. And, and that's what it comes down to. And I think I could see the relevance and I could see the importance of, of making these kinds of photographs for history, for education, for for moving people to to motivate people to whatever you know to really try and find a particular story or a particular photograph that may have some sort of change, you know, create some sort of change and be positive, and so that feels good, but it, it never relieves the pain and the and and what you feel as as someone behind the camera who really you know you just want to do more you know you know watching um someone else's pain especially children is 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 very hard to take um but you do and i certainly in terms of how to achieve being able to make those photographs is to sort of put yourself in the zone and and know that you have an ability to capture things that other people may not be able to capture and to be able to stand looking at the suffering and 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 that's something i i guess i i grew up learning how to cope with and and i cope with it very well i i have never really shied away from very much at all and um and i think that's got a lot to do with just understanding um the realities of 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 the world and understanding the realities of pain and suffering and and then understanding your own role in yeah. that process and in that story and and yeah. being there to to be that window and to you know somehow um provide a a visual piece of evidence or piece of creativity or art or whatever you want to call it depending on the situation you know it's like it's, it's, it's an extraordinary job and you know when I mentioned those three parties in that situation before you are you are the fourth party because there is a you know while you're as a journalism uh, angle or a, in a journalistic space you're trying as hard as you can not to influence the situation you're just trying to document it mm. you, you know you don't want to make people do anything different because there's a camera there but when you think about what has caused great social change uh, and you know, it, it is it is that still frame. It's that photograph of Princess Diana shaking the boy dying of AIDS, shaking his hand, and no one, everyone at the time thought if you touch someone with AIDS, you're going to die. Which it was at the time in the eighties, that's what literally people thought was going to happen. It was so Absolutely. scary. And here's the beloved, you know, 
mm. People's Princess, mm. shaking the Stone Boy's hand, and yeah. the shooters got it on the. They got the moment. They got yeah. the absolute moment of their faces connecting, and there it is. And that ran, and people go, "Oh, okay, maybe it's going to be all right." Yeah. And you know, and just even, only a few years ago, God, I can't remember his name. Oh, I used to know it. The the little boy drowned on the beach of um, in Greece. In Greece. Yeah. All right, and that one particular picture, everyone. Oh, okay, right. We're going to have yeah. to do something. This is terrible. Yeah. This yeah. is terrible. And, you know, we'd seen so many photographs mm. of that, you know, the, the human trafficking, yeah. those terrible boats across the Mediterranean, but it was that one photo, that one yeah. shooter that got up early that morning and, yeah. you know, didn't grab a second coffee at the buffet, whatever, mm. just managed to be there at the right point, the right time. And that was a photo that did it. You know, it's, it it's, was. it's an incredibly important job. It is. And, and I think it's most photographers dream to be able to have that kind of impact to, to, to be able to create an iconic image in that way that would have an impact that would um, send shockwaves around the world and, mm. and wake people up out of their morning breakfasts and, and actually have an impact to do something about what, in this case, the, the dreadful refugee crisis that was coming out of the war in Syria. And, you know, that is most photographers' ultimate you know, dream and, and maybe ultimate high and, mm. and, and satisfaction. I mean, you know, it doesn't happen very often. It may never happen. You know, you could be a great photographer and you may never have that kind of impact or that kind of uh, situation, but it can happen and photographers do. But uh, it should never stop you from trying, you know. And, and, and I think, you know, as a collective body of work, you can also have different ways of, of telling stories and highlighting, you know, sort of situations yeah. and things like that as well. Um, but certainly, yeah, single iconic images, no question. And we've been, we've seen through history that there are certain photographs that change our opinions and, and um, helps change the world, you know, yeah. in, in many ways from the second, First World War, Second World War, Vietnam, often their wars, because um, yeah. war is generally the most, uh, you know, tragic of, of all um, scenarios, but great disasters as well, yeah. earthquakes and typhoons and, you know, tsunamis, you know, a kid washing up, you know, on the beaches of, I think it was Lesbos, or one of those places, but yeah, yeah, it's... Um, it's a powerful. It's a powerful tool. It's a powerful medium. I, I personally, I don't know of any more powerful, you know, medium than 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 still photography. I think that you know, and I've you know done a lot of video. I've done moving images and sound, and you know, I think photography has that sort of impact and ability to really, you know, make people stop and think and feel. And, and, you know, that's one of the reasons I wanted to pick up a camera in the first place was yeah. to, to actually do that, to actually be able to have someone be so affected and, and someone feel so, so much about something that they will think about it and they will, they will do something or, they, you know, whatever. I mean, yeah. when, when, you are in, when you are in a conflict zone, when you are in a, a place where there's a lot of very vulnerable people, some of them with... An enormous amount of power over some of them who have no power, whether that be the UN people in charge of the camp and the people trying to get into the camp, or some you know army and the refugee or, or whatever. Is there a commonality that you've noticed around around people as you've you've travelled around? 
You mean dealing with relationships with, with yeah, those people? Yeah, is there, is there, at, at the end of it, are you able to see, oh, there's, he's just a dude. He just happens to be the one with the gun right now. I think every scenario is different. Um, it depends on where you are. Yeah. But, look, I think, um, you know, certainly anyone with a gun is, is someone that you, uh, you know, you want to be as, as um, kind to as you possibly can and not piss them off. So you sort of learn to kind of, um, you know, how, how to sort of uh, react and how to behave in, in those kind of scenarios and how to make friends. And I think your personality is a big thing in these places. You know, having, having an open, um, happy personality goes a long way. Um, and, um, yeah, you literally have to be, uh, you know, always have your wits about you. You've really just got to, you know, spend a lot of time um, building relationships with people in these. You know, you often rely on them to to protect you um, or not to kill you or whatever the scenario may be. And, you know, you build up these different relationships. The same with NGOs and, and um yeah, military NGOs, whoever's out there, they all have their roles. Um, you often rely on NGOs to get you from A to B, you know, transport, um, lodgings, uh, sometimes work. Uh, I've worked for many NGOs and photographed for them. So, uh, and then, you know, the different military, you know, depending on, you know, whose side you're on. If you're, you know, doing a story about the fighting, then you're going to be with one of the sides or you may be with both. You may have to cross over and, and, and experience both sides of the battle, so to speak. So, yeah, there's, it's, it's all about building relationships. It's all about, and I think it's also about just having a real understanding of what your role is. Um, you know, when you're, you know, I think that's something you, you, you get as you experience things. I mean, when I was really young, I was kind of sort of naive and gung-ho and I, you know, got myself into some pretty hairy situations that I was lucky to get out of alive. And that comes from inexperience and, and uh, throwing yourself into the deep end in order to get the photographs that you wanted to get or to get that experience. But as you become older and as you do get that experience, you start to become a lot more connected and a lot more um, experienced about what you should and should not do and what risks you should and should not do. This all comes through multiple experiences, mm. you know, and every every war is different, every people is different. You know, there are some places you go to where just being white and Western can be, um, you know, dangerous, you know, for your life, you know. Um, so it just depends on what, what you're dealing with and, and you, whether it's a religious war, whether it's a humanitarian war-related thing. or um, But generally speaking, you you have your role and, and I think most people respect that generally in, 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 through my experience and that, you know, they sort of feel that if you can um, detach yourself from your... Your, your wonderful home in Australia where there's no conflict and it's all very easy and you eat well and, and you, you send yourself over to Somalia or Rwanda or, you know, Afghanistan or so forth, certainly the local people think you're crazy for a start. They just cannot comprehend why you would put yourself in their situation and, and be a part of this sort of misery and danger. But at the, the other side is this immediate respect and 
generally it's it's a good thing and they generally will then treat you like a brother and do everything they can to get you what you want to achieve in terms of your photography and where you want to go and and try and protect you mm. as much as they can so the, there's a real brotherhood there's a brotherhood on the ground with the people that are in the crises and there's a brotherhood with your colleagues and with the NGOs and and so forth do you, you you have this I think everyone is trying to deal with the dangers and, and, and you know, there's the physical dangers, there's a psychological trauma, there's, you know, there's, there's a hundred things that, that you need to deal with and, you know, no one wants to die. No one wants to be crippled or, you know, whatever. You know, you want to get out of there alive. And so, but you want, you're there to do a job. You, you're, you know, as a photographer, I'm there to take photographs. I'm there to bring back photographs for an assigned magazine that I may be working for or a personal project or an NGO I'm working for. I mean, it, you know, there are many, you know, whatever client you have, you have a responsibility. And I think you have a responsibility to, um, to also tell the truth and, and to, to have great respect and, and empathy about who you're photographing and, and how that is to be perceived and, and shown. So there's, there's many things that mm. sort of a domino effect uh, in terms of, you know, your photography too, in terms of what you're showing and the story you're telling. Yeah. You have that power to, um, to then, you know, dictate in a sense what is going on. Um, so you have this great responsibility too, to, to actually be a, um, a tool of truth. When you you mentioned something like this, you know, one of the main reasons I want to talk to you is, like, I'm fascinated with how do you, at the end of the day, you know, photographing conflict, photographing people dying, people, you know, that you saw in the morning alive and then you're shooting a photo of a corpse and you had a chat with that person, you know, that's – and then you go home. Hmm. Back to your hotel and then a couple of weeks later you're back here in Sydney, hmm. you know. How do you protect yourself from, you know, the psychological damage of that? Do you want the short answer or the long answer? Well, <laughs> the, the, we all know the trope yeah. of the, the war photographer yeah. who, mm. you know, and then he was at war with himself, you know. That's it's, right. It, it, it's, sure. and, you know, it, it, I've spoken to a number of journalists and who've sat in that seat who've, you know, there's a, there's a common way yeah. that people deal with it and sometimes it's not very healthy. I think I should give you the longer version. That's what we're here for. <laughs> um, look, I think it's it comes down to an individual mindset. Um, and if I can sort of somehow take you through the stages, that might help explain things um, uh, better than if I was just to try and explain it another way. So, you know... As an example, you know, I'm working, I've got an assignment for Time magazine and I've got to go to Afghanistan. And um, and this is a true story, so we'll make it true, we'll give the date. So this is September, early September 2001. So um, I'm preparing a, an assignment to go to Afghanistan to do a story on a guy called Ahmed Shah Massoud and I'm liaisoning with Time magazine to get over there and you know trying to you know sort of spur other interests with other magazines as well and on September 9 this guy's assassinated 
two days before September 11, the guy that I'm meant to be going to photograph. September 11 happens, the World Trade Center falls down and I watch it live at Bondi Beach and uh, in my apartment and, and then everything is, you know, the world has changed. It's, you know, as we know it, as we knew it. It was an extraordinary time and I then had a, a strong urge to, to still go. I, I really felt that Afghanistan was going to be big. I'd been covering Afghanistan, um, mind you, since 93 when it wasn't popular and no one really cared about it. But I committed myself to that story year in and year out to bring back stories about what was going on during the Civil War. So my commitment already to Afghanistan was huge. Um, but I could really see now that um, you know, Masood had been assassinated supposedly by al-Qaeda at the time. We weren't 100% sure. And then the World Trade Center, they were all pointing the finger at bin Laden. So it was like, okay, we're on Afghanistan. America's going to, they're going to go into Afghanistan. They're going to attack. And, and everyone, and the whole world was, was sort of, you know, thinking that. And I, so I, I was very early on, uh, on my way over and I, I was still assignment, uh, still on assignment for a Time magazine. So, but there's a process. You get the assignment, you have the story, you know where you're going maybe been there before in this situation of Afghanistan I'd been there quite a few times but every trip is different and every scenario is different and every danger is different so it's almost like going to a new place every time um, it's a very unpredictable country with many different tribes and many different allegiances and uh, huge hurdles to, to get across in in so many ways in terms of your safety so I was trying to, you know, like any assignment, and in particular this because it was a, a war zone, to, to, to try and prepare yourself mentally is, is something you need to do before you even get on the plane. And so, you know, and I think this is a process that I always go through and I become quite distant from anyone around me. I start to, and I do this alone and I pack my bags um, uh, my gear, everything I need, my flak jacket, my helmet, whatever I'm taking. I pack my camera bag quite religiously. I go through all the cameras. I make sure they're working. I, I pack everything. I pack the film. I crack open cartons and cartons of, of film rolls and, you know, just that motion of just breaking the box and clicking the, you know, the film canister and dumping all my rolls of film into uh, a lead bag to protect them from the x-ray machines but just that process is instinctual and um, it's a wonderful thing and it's also a very meditative thing and it really puts you in the zone it's the preparation that you have for your gear and everything that you're taking but it's also putting you into this kind of mindset it, it's sort of it's almost very meditative and and so making you know going through that process of, of getting everything together and packing the gear and then saying goodbye to your loved ones, I mean, your friends or whatever. I generally wouldn't sort of, uh, you know, with my mum who was alive at the time, I would, you know, always call her, but I would always tell her I was going somewhere else, you know, and just so she wouldn't worry. But uh, that's another thing. But, you know, you try and protect the ones that you love and, and, and try not to give them too much information, but without lying as well, you know. Um, 
and then I would fly over. Um, you know, obviously there was also visas to get. There was, you know, a lot of preparation involved. And then um, once you're on the ground, you know, there's a fixer you need to find, so a local person who can speak the language, who can be there with you all the time that you have to pay in order to get you from A to B. There'd be sometimes someone that you have a relationship with or you'd have to find someone new. Generally at the airport when you arrive, there'll be people there. You've got to find someone and, and then you've got to find a hotel to stay in and then you, you know. So it's, it's, it's this sort of process and then you go and take the journey. I mean, in going back to the original story of Afghanistan in 2001, I mean, I, I spent two weeks in Kazakhstan and Tajikistan even before I you know, set foot in Afghanistan because of all the hurdles, all the diplomatic, all the, you know, red tape and visa hurdles and things like that. And there were thousands of journalists from all over the world trying to get in. But eventually, you know, with a whole group of other journalists, including the writer from Time, a guy called Tony Davis, and a few other people from different news organisations, we kind of teamed up, rented a, a Russian um, driver and his Jeep and just drove into Afghanistan and we were there. That was it. That was the kind of early September or, you know, like maybe, well, no, late September. So like, you know, within about a week and a half after September 11. And you're, you're there, you're committed, you're, you know, you're, you're in the zone. Um, so, you know, there's all that, that preparation. And then when sh- once you're there, then you need to also be in that in that zone of dealing with what may or may not happen it is a process it's a very personal process i think everyone would 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 do it differently and um i mean there are times when i music plays a big role you know when i when i fly into particular places i remember going into east timor and i had public enemies fear of the black planet playing you know as i flew into into Dili and it was just on fire and the whole we didn't know what to expect or you know the militia had gone crazy the Indonesians were burning everything and I flew in with a, a British C-130 with 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 public enemy because for me it's it's that that's what helped me get into the zone of when I landed and got out I'd have to run and take photographs so music also allows that sort of that time to um to get into the zone, you really do, uh, you know, um, yeah, plays a big role and it's almost different soundtracks to different wars, you know. I bet, I bet. <laughs> and is there a similar, well, I, I understand that, what you're describing, it's, it's funny, mm. I, I, I had a, a SEAL sniper on this show, he was there on October 3rd, he was in, in the mountains mm. of Afghanistan on October 3rd, or maybe before that, maybe October 2nd. Right. But yeah, he said, Meals still warm on the table. No one was there, mm. but like someone had tipped them off that they were they were they were on the way in. It's a very mm. like, he talks similarly about the prep for the gear being uh, okay. Here I am. It's almost uh, all right. This is a big part of yeah. it and can't be interrupted. I really understand. It's very that. monk-like. Yeah, precisely because it allows you to then kind of almost uh, take on board the like uh, mm. at home guy hanging out, going to the beach road guy. Now I'm mm. now I'm 
you know, here to do a job guy. Yeah. And then what's the other side of it look like? I'm guessing PE is not on the way out. I'm guessing it's maybe something a little more subdued as you're trying to reconnect because that is what a lot of people have trouble with is like, well, that's- you know, I've just been with my adrenaline gland, my adrenal gland pumping all day long, yeah. hyper alert, you know, total situational awareness. How do I not jump at spiders when people yeah. just try to hug me? Well, look, I think, you know, that's, that's, that's a really important you know, scenario, important question too. I mean, you know, it's one thing getting into a war zone and dealing with it, um, which is, you know, what I was sort of talking about, but then coming out um, and dealing with the coming out is, is another challenge in itself. And I think every, you know, everyone has their own way. But I mean, I, you know, I, I, I tend to, you are on this incredible rush. There's no question. And it's, it's a rush of the intensity of the experience it's also a rush of the creativity of the photographs that you've taken. There's, there's many different elements um, involved. Um, the excitement of going back and processing the films and then going through the contact sheets and, and editing and, and finding the photos. You, you know, we didn't, we didn't get, it's not digital, you know, we didn't get to see anything. You, know, you had to believe in the photographs. You had to believe that, you know, in this 100 rolls of film that you had these these great pictures. So there was always that excitement and, and also nervousness too to hope that you did get it. And then, you know, it's it's a question of really landing back home or how, you know, I mean, in, before I was before I had my daughter, there's two sort of stages because before I had my daughter, I would I would struggle a bit actually with how to deal with it. I'm especially you know living in London, we'd just spend our time at the pub and we'd drink, you know, and um, and I'd be up with other photographers and colleagues who had been through the same experiences, even the same war, which was good because we could kind of talk about it and and feed off each other with with what we were going through emotionally i mean um i remember this one situation where i was i was covering the genocide in rwanda and um in um 94 we were one of the first uh photographers on the scene um another australian guy called jack baconi and myself and we travelled through Rwanda and, you know, saw all the atrocities, all the massacres and, you know, basically went through something which was just unprecedented from what we'd seen. I mean, we'd never seen anything, experienced anything like it. It was just, it was just unbelievable. Real just hand-to-hand the, barbarism, if no one... It was, you know, it, it was, it was, it yeah. was absolute hell on earth. Butchery. It was, yeah. it was like nothing could prepare us. Yeah. <laughs> mentally emotionally uh for what we saw and when we came back out of that from covering that story it never left us and and i remember you know again just going into the pub with jack and i was just you know i was just saying to him you know fuck, I, I can't get this out of my mind and i I can't get the smell of death out of my clothes, even if I've been washing them. So, you know, I'd be like, you know, I'd be smelling my shirt and it'd smell like Rwanda because the whole country just stunk of death. There were so many rotting bodies that you could not get away from the smell and it got into your clothes. I think it got into my skin. Um, You know, maybe it was, you know, it was just my imagination, but mm. it was there and I was smelling it. And he was too. So it was this sort of traumas like that, which are on the extreme level, you know, of course. But 
you find ways to console with your 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 closest colleagues or friends and that's what we used to do a lot we used to just you know go and try and relieve ourselves through drink and then also just talk about it um because it was something you couldn't really talk about with anyone else and um and it wasn't like oh shit you know i kind of uh, i'm so messed up i've got to go see a psychiatrist or whatever it was never like that it was it was actually uh, i'm so clear I am so clear, but I am so affected by it. But I just need to find ways of kind of dealing with it, and um, and that's always a different challenge in different scenarios. But but just going back to the whole, just coming out on adrenaline rush and things like that. You know, you you come home and you just try and immerse yourself back into society, and that's you know sometimes a challenge when you're sort of sitting at a bar and people are talking about real estate prices and you just sort of shake your head and you just go oh man you just have no idea of what's going on in the world and all you can think about is your cafe latte or your you know and and so that really affects you because you you start to get angry you start to get angry at your friends and people you're hanging out with and that's not right either you know because they don't know and it's not their fault and so you you start to become quite judgmental and i think you need to almost sort of teach yourself that you've been through this extreme scenario and it is what it is doesn't make you a better person doesn't make you anything different from anyone else so you actually have to educate yourself in that you know and take yourself out of that zone so that's experience mm. that that comes from going back and forwards to different wars and different crises and and also having the um the understanding of your own body and your own mind um and you know and then i would sort of you know go through certain meditation processes i would surf surf's a big th- surfing is without doubt one of the the greatest things for for coming down for me and still is um because it is my meditation um being out in the surf so things like that kind of really set your body and mind balance and then having my daughter um so you know as soon as she came into the world there was no excuses there was no margin of error and so everything had to be you're back in her life you know you're back there for her and and so you know my partner Lizzie so it's like dealing with the family i couldn't bring my world of trauma into their world so you learn very quickly how to disconnect from that and um and it's it's never black and white it's never going to be easy but and, and sometimes that ugly head will kind of raise itself or whatever but generally i've been pretty good with um with managing those two worlds um but certainly having having my daughter was a huge wonderful stepping stone to to be able to lose that what is it to almost lose that kind of arrogance and 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 that to understand unconditional love with someone and not to disturb that world but not to lie about it either to to try and give them an, an understanding of your world but without the angst or the the blame or in fact i've turned it around to a point where you know everything is educational yeah you know i mean i'll even sit down with her when i went to the philippines to cover the typhoon i sat my daughter down i said look there's been a really 
bad storm that's killed a lot of people in a place called the Philippines. And I went through and explained everything to her so she would have an understanding of why I was going, you know. And, um, and I think that's really important when they get to a certain age. And so, you know, I generally try and explain things to her in, in as much as I can to, to why I'm going and what I do as a photographer and, and the importance it can be and so forth. So it's sharing that. And that helps too emotionally. And I think people, you know, no one wants to be kept in the dark, especially the ones closest to you. Yeah. When uh, one of my favourite stats that I've only just learned from this Hans Rosling book that I've been reading is that in 2016, 40 million passenger airlines successfully took off and landed, if you count them all up. But we only heard about the 11 that didn't make it. It's interesting, yeah. So he's basically just kind of say, like, yeah, bad shit happens, but let's... I always ask, he always says, always ask for a second number. Mm. Yes, there were 11 crashes. Mm. How many planes successfully took yeah. up and landed? Mm. 40 million? Okay, mm. all right. Mm. So is that a risk where I get that? Mm. And what was the other number he mentioned? That passenger aircraft travel is now something along the lines of 2,700 times safer mm. than it was yeah. in 1945. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Know? Absolutely. Uh, so when... And he also goes on about, you know, him and Stephen Pinker with um, Better Angels of Our Nature and stuff like that. They just basically go through all the stats and just yeah. go. And you can alleviate those risks yeah. too. Don't yeah. fly in Russia. <laughs> don't fly in Indonesia. <laughs> don't fly in China. And then you're pretty much okay, you know. Like, <laughs> yeah, they, they basically go through the stats a bit and like just go, yeah, we do see a lot of scary things hmm. on our phones, on the telly, yeah. in the paper. Look, so but over the, over the course of the last hundred years, the world is – go to great lengths to go the world's never been more peaceful no despite what we see yeah I read this great book hey, what was the, the writer you were talking about uh, Hans Rosling Stephen Pinker Better Angels yeah. of Our Nature it's amazing that's book. the book amazing that, that, that was, yeah it's, it's an about incredible book thick. I know it's about 900 pages it's I mean what, what's great I read a paragraph and go oh hang on Stephen I need a day to think about that well <laughs> what, what was also great about that which I was you know deeply kind of shocked about was that we're living in a safer time than we ever have amazing Less war than we've yeah. ever had. Yeah, it doesn't seem that way, but in fact, it is. It's certainly not to you, as no. someone who's deliberately going like, to these front serious? lines. But yeah, I can. I kind of get it when he puts it into perspective. You know, think back in the days of the Romans and the, mm. the Persian Empire and the Mongols. I mean, there yeah. was there was war everywhere, and you yeah. know, much more you know prevalent than now. And um, yeah, so it's it, it is an interesting concept, and. Um, the world is a safer place than it's ever been. I can I can kind of get that, but um, yeah, I suppose it doesn't seem that way because we are so now inundated with internet and social media that you know, unlike any time before us, mm. we get that news almost live, or we actually do get it live. So, yeah, you know, we're actually seeing things right there, right now, and it just seems like. Um, yeah, it just seem, always seems worse than it is. Mm. And, and yeah, you've got to put it into perspective. You do. And that's, yeah, that's the thing that Rosalind talks about. He goes, if something equally as amazing on the good side of this mm. story happened, would I hear about it? Probably not. Mm. Probably not. You've obviously spent the majority of your life documenting people, countries, communities at their absolute most vulnerable, at their darkest, at their, at their most risk, you know, what the fuck's going to happen place. When you look at the world that your kids growing up into, how do you feel about it? That's a really good question. I'll be deeply honest here. 
I think the real fear is not the sort of things that I've seen and photographed. It's not war. It's not conflict within religions. It's the internet. It's social media, as far as I'm concerned. That, for me, is the real fear of my child growing up in that world, in that world of, of cyberbullying and that world of me and selfies and all of that stuff that's coming out now in the young generations. I think that's the scariest thing that we've ever seen. And um, I you know, have no idea what the solution is or... Um, you know, except that I'm dealing with it as a parent, as I'm sure a lot of parents are dealing with their, their young ones and how how the hell do we compete with this and how the hell do we, or how the hell, how, how can we stop it, you know? Like how can we, um, you know, of course we can't stop it, but how can we make it less, you know, dangerous? You know, how can we kind of educate and, you know, through all these different things. So for me that's the real fear. It really is... As much as we need the internet, night, you know, we're all we're all guilty of it. We all use it, you know. We, you know, I use it for, for work, and and I use social media as well. But you know, it's it's like, how did this beast get loose? Mm. You know, and how do we control the beast? Okay. You know, and I think we really, as a, as a, as a global union of humanity, we we have to somehow find a way to deal with that beast and I, I, I don't know how that is but it, it needs to be dealt with yeah. uh, as much as global warming and, and, and climate change needs to be d- dealt with you know there are certain things that are the great dangers and it is climate change and it is the internet and um, all of these civil wars and and, and things like that uh, are byproducts, in a way, of a lot of this stuff too. Yeah. So you certainly know, you in, need to get in, to in the, Myanmar. That's exactly what happened. With climate there, yeah. change, and, and certainly even with the internet. You know, I mean, it's you know, I don't think we'd have the amount of you know extremism, for example, that we have these days without the power of social media and the internet. So it's it's, it's dealing with that beast, and 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 I think then that develops into dealing with everything else. That that is the core of our existence it really is and it's 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 wonderful and it's and it's horrific at the same time and and i don't know how to deal with it and uh it's a scary um yeah our children what are they are going to be the ones that have to really deal with it mm. you know what's well, the i think it's super important clearly since like the work of yuval noah harari is as someone that i guess has influenced me a lot because mm. he's got this line of like never in our lives have we been so hackable or willingly hackable yeah. as yeah. our intentions and our actions are concerned and um the other guy roger mcnamee he's the vc who's um he's like bono's partner in the elevation right. partners and uh, yeah he's been in tech since the 80s he was basically zuckerberg's mentor got sheryl yeah. sandberg hired was his mentor yeah. and advisor right up until they went to ipo in 2012 and he's like um this is really bad what's mm. happening really really bad because yeah, yeah. you know we've seen it influence elections we've seen it we're no longer living in a shared reality there was a yeah. time when your photograph of yours would publish and then no matter what side of the political spectrum spectrum you're on people would see it and go that's what's happening whereas yeah. now me you my neighbor everyone will look online and we will see a different photo yeah. of the same situation taken from a different angle that's with right. a different story that's right and that's not good 
because no. that's where democracy suffers. Yeah. So I think there's, um, there's a lot of work to be done, but there's also a great possibility around what might end up because of it. Yeah. No, yeah. look, no question. I mean, and that is, you know, we don't know, do we? We no. haven't seen the, we can't see the future. No. But yeah, look, I think you just got to deal with the, 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 you know, the here and now and, and try as best as possible to, um, you know, to just to just deal with you know all those things too you mm. know certainly in terms of um, making your life good and and also the people around you and 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 trying to live within the context of our fragile planet I think that's sort of key to everything really I keep telling you know whenever I sort of talk about what's going on I I, I can't. I can't help going back to every time, every subject, everything that happens in my life just goes back to the environment somehow. You know, it's just trying to deal with our planet, trying to deal with our earth and, and how we can how we can protect it. Most, mate, well, it's, pretty it's much like, most, most conflict you know, is are, about shared space, right? Yeah. And what bigger shared space is there than our atmosphere, than our ocean? Mm. That's it. Yeah. We all share it. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Well, the thing is, well... We're going to figure it out because we have to figure it out because we have no option other than to figure it out. <laughs> That's pretty much the thing that I'm, I try to hold yeah. on to, man. Yeah, I do too. Look, I, I, I am a, I'm positive. You know, I, I, am, I am at the same time. I'm, I'm a bit of a realist, and I. It's a whole other conversation, but you know, I, I see a lot of danger in where, where we're headed. Yeah. You know, and and but I have to be positive. I have to, in order to to keep living, in order to keep smiling. You know. <laughs> yeah. Laughter is the greatest thing we have. Yeah. It's like I, I see even with all this sort of disasters and wars and I, I just see black comedy as the ultimate solution to it really at the end of the day. You've just, no matter how horrible and tough it is and, 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 and nasty, you know, you just turn it into black comedy and it's okay. You can deal with it, you know, and, and I think that's, that's a, it's a good way to look at things in order to sort of not laugh at things or at people but sort of laugh at yourself and laugh at the situation in order to get through the trauma it's a great thing Man, I'm so great for you coming out today thanks yeah, so much yeah no I mean it was a pleasure you know it was good to talk to you it's actually thanks, man. for me you know it's kind of almost therapeutic in a way you know because but also I like I like to talk you know I like to talk and I like to talk to you know someone who's interested in hearing you know what I've got to say obviously and um yeah, so it's always a, it's always a it's always a pleasure, you know. To, cool, man. Um, but I'm you know I'm looking forward to you know you know new projects and new things and you know surfing and all that. <laughs> yeah. sort of well, I, I mean I spend I, I must admit I spend a lot of time in the surf. I probably should spend less time there and more time behind the computer. But hey, nah, life's too short. It you really bet. is. Well, I'm grateful that we've got someone like you to help us. You know, yeah. have those moments where we go ah. We should do something about this. And then as a society, we can all move forward, which is yeah. awesome. Oh, absolutely. Thanks, man. Oh, cool. All right. No, so it's finished. We're, we're done. Yeah, the, I'm going to stop recording. cookies left. And I'm going to shoot your photo. You enjoy yeah. a cookie. I'll get the camera ready. <laughs> That was Stephen Dupont. You can find him on Instagram at Stephen M. Dupont, S-T-E-P-H. E-N-M-D-U-P-O-N-T. Of course, Stephen is a part of the Aperture Australia Conference, which is happening at the International Convention Centre in Sydney and Darling Harbour on the 22nd and 23rd of June. More details are at apertureaustralia.com. Thank you very much to everyone that helped me make the show today. Rachel Barrett the producer of my world, Andy Ma, the producer of my audio, and Mike Mills, the producer of my music. 
and Audrey Griffin, the producer of Our Baby. <laughs> um, thanks heaps for listening. I really appreciate it. Thanks all so much for getting in touch and letting me know how you're going. It really means the world. Look after yourself this week, and I'll, I'll talk to you on Friday. Until we speak then, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.